This week on the show, we have NetBSD 8.0 being released, FreeBSD on Scaleway's ARM64 VPS, an encrypted backup tutorial with OpenBSD, Dragonfly server storage upgrade, a Zpool checkpoints blog post, as well as G2K18 hackathon reports and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 257, Great NetBSD 8, recorded on the 1st of August 2018. Hi, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. It is hot where we are, but nothing is hotter than this week's episode, of course, of BSD Now. And the headlines start off great uh, with NetBSD version 8.0 being released. So that is nice. Uh, that's from July 17, 2018. And of course, NetBSD project uh, is pleased to announce NetBSD 8.0, the 16th major release of the NetBSD operating system. This release brings stability improvements, hundreds of bug fixes, and many new features. Some highlights of NetBSD 8 release are the USB stack has been reworked, apparently. So this is USB 3 support has been added. Oh, great. More speed for USB, among other things. Um, there's an internal audio mixer, audio underscore system, reproducible builds. That's also good. Uh, full user land debug information with make debug is available. And while most install media do not come with them, the debug and xDebug sets can be downloaded and extracted as needed later. Yeah, for the people who are uh, developing and see doing want to do crash analysis and things like well, that. Well, specifically, if you're not a developer, you normally don't have it installed. But if you start having a problem, you can go get the debug symbols that match the release binaries uh, and add them so that suddenly you can debug those crashes or, or, or give more meaningful crashes to uh, a developer to fix. Mm. Okay, then there's the PAX mProtect or write X or uh, execute the memory protection enforced by default on some architectures with fine-grained memory protection and suitable ELF formats uh, i386, AMD64 uh, EV, EVB ARM and LAN disk Okay, plus there's PAX ASLR which is address space layout randomization enabled by default uh, for i386, AMD64 EBB ARM, Landisk, and Spark64. There's also position-independent executables, or PI, by default on userland for i386, AMD64, ARM, M68K, MIPS, SH3, and Spark64 architectures. Oh, wow. And new socket layer, CAN, has been added to communications, uh, or for communications of devices on a CAN bus. Uh, that's Which is uh, used a lot in cars and other things like that. Yeah, industry, networking... Um, a special pseudo-device uh, interface has been added, IPsecIF for route-based VPNs uh, as well. And parts of the network stack have been made MP-safe, and the kernel option net underscore MP-safe is required to enable this. Hardening of the network stack has also been done in general, and various WAPBL, NetBSD's file system lock option, stability and imp uh, performance improvements. Hey, wow, that looks like a a bunch of new stuff in there, especially for security. 
Oh, and yes, of course, specific to i386 and AMD64, CPUs, meltdown mitigations, SVS, separate virtual space enabled by default, Spectre version 2 mitigations, the red Pauline support in GCC used by default for kernels, as well as other hardware mitigations are also available, Spectre version 4 mitigations available for Intel and AMD, and uh, PopSS workaround, user access to debug registers is turned off by default. Lazy FPU saving is disabled on vulnerable Intel CPUs or the eager FPU and the SMAP support is there. Oh, wow. That's that's really a security uh, bump in here in that BSD. Yeah, uh, as, uh, a lot of these fixes went into all the operating systems recently. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. And there's the improvement and hardening of the memory layout, uh, right or, uh, well, write, X or execute, fewer writable pages, better consistency and better performance, as well as UEFI bootloader. Hey, that's, that's really nice. Um, mm-hmm. So now the many EVB ARM kernels now use the FTT, the flattened device tree information, which are loadable at boot time from an external file. And um, the number of kernels has decreased, but a number of boards have vastly increased. And there's, so of you course... Need, uh kernels specifically compiled for the hardware you're going to run it can load the it can know which devices are there from the flattened device tree file uh and you know if you go back and all the way into history of unix you used to have to build your kernel specifically for your hardware um and you know enable the drivers you wanted um we're kind of lucky in uh, modern like amd64 hardware that the PCI and PCI Express buses are innumerable. You can ask the bus, hey, what cards are plugged into you? Well, on ARM, that's not really a thing. Um, and so you need to know what devices are there and also what addresses they're at so you can talk to them. Um, and that's what the flattened device tree does in this case. Mm. Yeah, that helps. And uh, there are, of course, lots of updates to third-party software like GCC 5.5 with su- to support that, as we mentioned, is address sanitizer and undefined behavior sanitizers, GDB 7.12, uh, GNU Binutils 2.27, Clang LVM versions 3.81, OpenSSH 7.6, OpenSSL 1.02K, uh, MDoc ML, uh, AC. PICA, NTP, Radius versions, DHCPD, and Lua 5.34. Uh, of course, there's a bunch more in this release um, that is covered in the major release notes that are linked in our show notes. Um, so yeah, definitely check it out, and uh, congratulations, NetBSD, for another uh, major release. Yeah, uh, looks like other interesting things. They have the RTWN driver support for the Realtek 8188 and 8192. Uh, so that's more AVG and wireless devices that are supported. Uh, support for Virtio SCSI for virtualization um, and uh, NVMe device drivers. Ah, so that also works on devices that are coming more and more, uh, becoming more and more general. Especially in laptops and servers. Mm. Uh, So next up, we have a tutorial on running FreeBSD on ARM64 uh, over at Scaleway. Uh, So you can actually rent ARM64 uh, machines and run FreeBSD on them now. Oh, cool. Uh, Yeah. Uh, So they say, uh, I've been thinking uh, about 
doing this for the, about the six months that they've been offering this. Uh, but yesterday, uh, I don't see the data when they actually wrote this, uh, they actually signed up for the ARM64 offering. And turns out it's pretty great. Uh, it boots UEFI, and then you have a Vertio disk, uh, and it will run on FreeBSD. Uh, so this tutorial actually helps you depenguinate uh, the default Linux install that they come with and put FreeBSD in its place. Uh, so it's pretty straightforward. Uh, for some reason, unlike the x86 machines, uh, mounting additional volumes is not allowed on the ARM instances. So we'll have to move the running Linux uh, to a RAM disk using pivot root, and then we can uh, go about erasing the disk. So they spun up uh, an instance with Ubuntu Zesty on it, SSHDN, installed uh, gdisk, which is kind of like the gpart command on FreeBSD. So gpt disk utility is like fdisk, but for gpt. Um, they created a tempfs, uh, copied over enough of the operating system to be able to run on it, um, and then used pivot root to basically uh, have the system running out of the temp directory instead of the uh, root directory. Mm -hmm. uh, and then once that's ready, uh, and you've reconnected to SSH, uh, Now you can uh, start up the services and get your system running out of this uh, new file system root. I show you, and then uh, what we'll do is we'll download the um, FreeBSD AM, uh, sorry, ARM64 image. Um, in the tutorial, they have the link to a specific image. This is from July 19th. Obviously, if you're following this, you probably want to just grab the newest one. Uh, or 12.0 release once that comes out in a, a couple of months. But uh, they grab that and then they DD it into that uh, onto the disk so that now the disk will be running uh, or will contain the FreeBSD installer image. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd like to say in the notes here, look for the newest snapshot, not uh, just follow the link that they have in the notes here because that will not work after a couple of months when we delete the old snapshots. Yeah, get the fresh one from the website. Yeah. Uh, now, because the memstick image you just wrote to the disk was for a one gig memstick, uh, the partition table will be in the wrong spot. So they used the gdisk command to expand the partition table and rewrite it to be for the whole disk again. And you want to reboot. Uh, and now you'll be running into the FreeBSD uh, installer. And so once that's going, you can uh, set it up to run on the serial console and EFI and put that up. You can ignore warnings about uh, the serial not being valid right now. Uh, but now you have the regular installation process, so you can install uh, your system. Uh, or they actually provided some examples on setting it up manually. Uh, slightly different than the default install. But whichever one you prefer, uh, you set up the system here. Uh, and then in the end, you need to uh, enable ZFS, which they've not actually done correctly here. Oh really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I see. They they loaded the open ZFS or sorry, the open Solaris module, but not the ZFS module. If you just load the ZFS module, it'll pull the other one in as a dependency. 
Anyway, fix that in our notes. Anyway. <laughs> uh, but that's once you've done that, uh, you will be able to... Actually, how does that work? Hold on. So they wrote the mem stick to the the disk and then ran the installer and partitioned the disk. Which would override the, the mem stick image. Memstick, yes. I'm not seeing how that actually worked. Oh, nope, nope, sorry. Nope, they didn't do that. Uh, they did a manual install and added... So the mem stick was the first gig of the disk and then the rest was empty and they created a ah. ZFS uh, partition there and they're installing to the rest of the disk Okay, right. they left some space. You can reuse yeah. that one gig at the front for uh, swap, swap or, or something. Mm. Okay, that's, yes, so that'll that work fine. Uh, then they package install curl to get more stuff downloaded, or yeah, why is it? Uh, curl? Then they grabbed Scaleways uh, overlay stuff script and ran that, uh, and that would. Uh, grab the SSH keys and so on, and set up the network. Ah, yes, yeah. Authorized keys. Right. It does this so that you will um, use the the cloud init type stuff to get the right address on the VM and so on. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Here it is. Yep, and they get that going, uh, and they say, keep in mind that current snapshots have the debugging kernel by default, which will be about 20-ish percent slower. Uh, so if you really need high performance, uh, you should recompile with the generic dash no debug kernel. Uh, and uh, although you can disable some of the heaviest weight problems uh, by setting the malloc.conf uh, to not spend as much time looking for memory errors. Yeah, that gives you a bunch of uh, performance settings, which is... Uh only in the snapshot images, not in the release versions. And yes, they mentioned that they can that you can reuse the installer's partition for the swap if you're done with the install. You can you, yeah. you don't have to have it lay around empty. Yeah, um, but it also may be a useful thing to have for um, rescue or something like that. Emergencies, yeah, to mm -hmm. have a working system. But uh, they set this up with boot environments, so they probably won't need that. Mm -hmm. Okay, ah, see, that's that's how you depenguinate uh, certain systems. <laughs> yeah, um, and you know that pretty much the same procedure should work fine for um, real hardware Various. as well as the virtual machines. Yeah. Or embedded devices that uh, only run certain Linuxes or whatever it is. Yep. There are ways. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, if you would like to run on regular x86 uh, virtual machines, check out DigitalOcean. Head over to digitalocean.com and take a look. If you use the coupon code FREEBSD now, they'll give you a $10 credit in your account. But if you're really smart, You'll take this secret URL, do.co slash BSD now, and they'll give you a $100 credit for 60 days to try out DigitalOcean and 
you know, experience the greatness. Yeah, for example, they switched their, uh, so if you have an account there, they have now built um, it into a more uh, feature-like or project-like uh, control panel. So you can uh, group your VMs together and based on the, the purpose that they have. So they they, re they redesigned basically their, their management control panel to be a little bit more, um, well, easy to, to understand or yeah, um, well, like, grouping together. So I was achieving the same thing by having a couple of separate teams, mostly consisting of the same people. Yeah. Uh, but I imagine that led them to discovering that sometimes one team will be working on three projects. Uh, and so now uh, inside teams, you can break things down into projects and group your different VMs together. And it makes it easier to decide, all right, we, we're done with that project. We can get rid of those VMs or... Um, yeah. You know, we know that this is how much we spent on that project or whatever. Yeah, and projects can also contain, among droplets, load balancers, domains, floating IPs, and spaces. So that's nicely grouped together so you can see what uh, belongs to your individual project. Yeah, and uh, at $15 a month for 2 gigs of RAM and 2 virtual CPUs uh, and 60 gigs of SSD back storage and 3 terabytes of internet transfer, it's pretty hard to go wrong. Um, yeah, you, know, you could decide it, that you want more RAM or more CPUs and do that, uh, or you could get an even cheaper instance if you only need one gig of RAM and one CPU. Yeah, and with that internet transfer rate, right, you can think about, oh, I could run a bunch of services on that machine with all that traffic going on and not paying extra for that one terabyte. That's already something. Yeah, uh, you'd have to be doing quite a bit to use up three terabytes of internet traffic in a month. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, and that's coming from someone who knows uh, about internet streaming and all kinds of data pushing around in the internets. And you can also use their one-click applications in case you don't want to mess around with setting up the an a Discord server or GitLab. They have one-click applications, so it will deploy be deployed into into your little droplets, and you can just run with that and don't have to hassle around with configuring it. Yep. So next up, we have a story about setting up encrypted backups with OpenBSD. Yeah, especially using um, OpenBSD base tools. You don't have to install any additional software from uh, ports and packages. It's right all built into the operating system. So uh, this is over at dataswamp.org. Uh, <laughs> nice domain. Uh, so it goes like this. Today's topic is encrypted backups using only OpenBSD base tools. I'm planning to write a bigger article later about backups, but it's a wide topic with a lot of software to cover and a lot of explanations about the different use cases, needs, issues, and solutions. Uh, here they will stick to explaining how they make reliable backups for an OpenBSD system, their laptop. So what they need is the dump command, like uh, the dump command that you uh, know and hopefully use or have been using. Uh, and it's a utility to make a backup for a file system. It can only make a backup of one file system at a time. And on the laptop, uh, it only took a backup of their home partition. So the solution is suitable for them while it is still being easy enough. Uh, dump can be uh, can do incremental backups. So um, you don't have to dump the whole thing all over again. You only get the deltas. Uh, it means that it will only save for change since the last backup of the lower level. And if you do not understand this, please refer to the dump man page where there's an explanation in there. 
And what is very interesting with dump is that it honors no dump flag, which is an extended attribute of a fast file system. One can use the command change flags, no dump, slash home, slash your username, uh, slash downloads, for example, to tell the dumps that it should not save that folder under some circumstances. And by default, dump will not save uh, those files except for a level zero backup, which backups the whole partition. The important features of this backup solution are they save files with attributes, permissions, and flags. It can recreate a partition from a dump, restore files interactively from a list or from its inode number, which is useful when you have files in lost and found, and one dump, one file. So uh, the process they're doing is, or they're using, is to make a huge dump of level zero and keep it on a remote server. Then, once a week, uh, they make a level one backup, which will contain everything changed since that last dump of level zero, and everything they do at level two backup of their files, um, which includes, or it contains latest files and the files changing a lot, which are often the most interesting ones. And level one backup is important because it will offload a lot of changes for the level two backup. So there's a nice layered backup strategy. So they explain it like this. Let's say my full backup is 60 gigabytes full of pictures, source files, GUI applications, data files, etc. Level one backup will contain every new picture, new projects, new, well, new everything things. <laughs> Usually it's only 100 megabytes to one gigabyte. And as they don't need to, or as they don't add new pictures every day or use new software every day, the level two will take care of most little changes in their data, like source code edited, works on files and such. The level two backup is really small. They try to keep it under 50 megabytes so they can easily send it to the remote server every day. Now, uh, you could... Um, add one more dump level up to level nine, but keep in mind that those are incremental. In their case, it needs to uh, restore all the partitions. It will need to use level zero, one, and two to get to the latest backup state. And if you want to restore a file deleted a few days ago, you need to remember in which level its latest version is. So history note, dump was designed to be used with magnetic tapes because that's where it was used and developed for way back when. And if you want to know more about the backup strategies and the, the actual commands that you need to run, check out the article linked in the show notes. There you can just, uh, there's also uh, encryption with OpenSSL. So that will also add to your uh, backups a little bit more security and no one can else, uh, no one else can decrypt them. Yeah, so they show uh, using dump and then piping that into gzip and then piping that into OpenSSL for encryption. Um, but then they show that using XZIP, they can use the multi-threaded compression mode to use more of their cores to do the compression, and that will save quite a bit of time. Uh, sadly, there's no mode like that for the encryption in this case. Uh, you can get a multi-threaded version of GZIP called PIGZ, uh, but XZIP will give you even better compression and has the threading support built in. Um, also, Zed standard isn't quite as doesn't compress quite as much as XZIP, but can compress faster. Um, and it has uh, what's interesting is Zed standard has an adaptive mode where you give a range of compression levels. Uh, it, it supports nineteen compression levels, uh, so that's quite a few. Uh, that's a bunch. But it can change the compression level up and down based on how fast the other end of the the pipe is reading it. So. Ooh, cool. If, if you're, say, 
sending it to a remote server, you want to compress as much as you can, but you don't want to be compressing so much that it's slower than the internet, uh, because then it's actually going to take longer to back up than if you didn't compress it quite as much. So it looks at how much data is waiting to go out to the internet, uh, and if that level starts to get low, it will compress a bit less so that it'll go faster and you'll keep up with the pipe. But if you're piling up all this data waiting for the network because the internet connection isn't very fast, you'll save time by spending more time compressing, uh, lowering the rate you're writing data out, but making the amount of data you're writing smaller. And so it can automatically adapt up and down uh, to compression level based on how fast the data is being consumed on the output pipe. And yeah, and it supports threading. Among other cool things, yeah. So yeah, you can exchange your uh, compression algorithm, but the, the basic dumping and backup uh, procedure is the same. Uh, and then, you know, the process for uh, restoring the files is similar. Um, the useless use of cat uh, piped into <laughs> OpenSSL, piped into decompression, whether it's, you know, uh, unexed, ungzip, or unzstandard, and then pipe that into the restore command. Mm -hmm. And then you have your partition back, or your uh, files on the partition, more importantly. <laughs> So, time for the news roundup this week. We have a status of Dragonfly server storage upgrades. So, this is from Matt Dillon, of course, of Dragonfly BSD. And that goes, Last month we did some storage upgrades, particularly of internet-facing machines for packages and the OS distribution. Yesterday we did a number of additional upgrades described below. All using funds generously donated by everyone. So, yeah, that wouldn't be possible if people haven't donated. So, thanks for that. And uh, so the main repository server received a 2 terabyte SSD to replace the HDDs that, is that it was using before. And this will improve access to a number of things, oh yeah, maintained by the server, including the mail archives, and gives the main uh, repo server more breathing room for repository expansion. Space was not uh, was it as a premium before, now there's plenty. Oh great, more uh, space for <laughs> big commits and changes. Mm -hmm. uh, Monster, the QuadSocket Opteron, which we currently use as the database builder and repository that we export to our public Grok service, which is grok.dragonflybsd.org. Uh, uh, it received a 512-gig SSD to add swap space for a swap cache to help cache the Grok metadata, and it now has a 600 gigabytes of swap space uh, continued, uh, uh, configured, uh, with over the next few weeks, we will also be changing the Grok updates to ping pong between the two four terabyte data drives it received in the last upgrade, so we can do concurrent updates and web access without them tripping over each other performance-wise. Right, so it'll serve off one four terabyte drive while updating the other one with newer data, and once that process is done, they'll flip the website to serving off that one and start rebuilding the other one. Mm -hmm. uh, so the main developer box, leave. Uh, received a 2 terabyte SSD and we are currently in the midst of migrating all the developer accounts in slash home and slash build from its old HDDs to its new SSD. Uh, this machine serves developer repos, developer web stuff, our homepage and wiki um, and other things, so those will become snappier as well. 
hard drives are becoming real dinosaurs. Uh, we will have a few left from the old days, but in terms of active use, the only HDDs we feel are really needed to keep now are the ones we use for backups and grok data, owing to the amounts of storage needed for those functions. So five years ago, when we received the Blade server that now sits in the colo, we had a small 256 gig SSD for root on every blade and everything else used HDDs. To make things operate smoothly, most of the 256 gigs uh, root SSD was assigned to swap cache with 200 gigabytes of it. In fact, in most cases, even just two years ago, replacing all those uh, hard drives with SSDs, even just the ones being used to actively serve data and support developers would have been cost prohibitive. But today it isn't, and the only HDDs we really need anywhere are the backups for certain very large bulk of uh, bits of bulk data, uh, like the Grok source repository and the index. The ways things are going, even the backup drives will probably become SSDs over the next two years. Yeah, that's logical progression. I suppose, but you know, I'm still buying twelve terabyte hard drives, <laughs> <laughs> just in case. And at, at prices where I'm never going to get a 12 terabyte SSD for that price. Uh, yeah. So we'll see how things go. Yeah, or NVMEs will become more mainstream. Yeah, but uh, again, uh, that's uh, really just a faster way of connecting an SSD. Unlocks more of the performance, but doesn't generally change how much the SSD costs. Yeah. So yeah, um, again, if you want to support this effort and other efforts, then donate to Dragonfly BSD, and uh, that will get to they will put it to good use. This week's episode of BSD Now is brought to you by IX Systems. Head over to ixsystems.com/bsdnow and check out their new ebook. Open source storage is disrupting the enterprise market. Yeah, we've Talks been talking about. about you really want to use open source based uh, storage solutions uh, because they don't lock you in and they provide better price and performance than you're going to get from an enterprise solution. Yes, you can get your data in and out again with open source tools and these are powered by uh, IX systems. They will provide you a from the smallest servers, the FreeNAS Mini and the Mini XL, which are already uh, can pack eight uh, not CPUs, <laughs> eight disks up to a full rack of, of storage if you require that, up to custom-built solutions for uh, education, finance, big data, or other uh, industries. And IX Systems has built thousands of these systems and they custom-tested. Yeah. So uh, I actually helped out with one uh, the other week that was something like 700 terabytes. Ooh. It was the... Uh, production storage for uh, a TV show uh, under development. And so it had all the raw video and they were having some trouble uh, and, you know, they got it sorted right out. Uh, But luckily, you know, very nice IX hardware made it very easy to get their 700 terabytes of storage set up. And, you know, the fact that they originally didn't think they would need quite that much storage. So they had just the one machine with a shelf and then it's like, oh, we're going to need more storage. So just another shelf full of, I think there were 10 terabyte hard drives. Uh, and then look, now we got lots more space. Yeah. And especially all these big storage appliances are powered by ZFS, which mm-hmm. IX systems uh, also 
helps in uh, supporting and reporting feedback on how that how that works and also employs some developers which also uh, push back updates to the FreeBSD uh, head repository and so there's a nice way of contributing back source code and uh, knowledge about these storage systems. Yep. And IX was also at OzCon, the open source uh, conference uh, from O'Reilly. Oh, cool. Nice picture here of uh, the FreeBSD Foundation booth, actually. Ah, the here we booth go. At uh, OzCon. And they said, I know those the folks. <laughs> FreeBSD's 25th anniversary, uh, the O'Reilly Open Source Conference uh, was back in Portland this year. Uh, for its 20th anniversary, and the Open Source Initiative also used the opportunities to celebrate the 20th anniversary of their founding. Uh, so, uh, in addition to some Portland locals, uh, FreeBSD co-founder Rod Grimes, Adam Stroll of A-Team Systems, and uh, some other people uh, joined Deb Goodkin and Ed Mast uh, from the FreeBSD Foundation to stand at the FreeBSD table and answer people's questions. Which I guess they get a lot of because a lot of people go to OSCon. Mm -hmm. uh, continuing uh, tradition started back in 2009, the Computer or sorry Community Leadership Summit Unconference, hosted by John O'Bacon, took place on the weekend uh, before OSCon. Similar to BSDCAN, it had a perfect amount of overlap to allow for badge pickup and lots of reunions. Uh, so what was going on there? Some nice pictures of the main conference. Mm -hmm. So for the main conference, uh, yeah, Michael Dexter uh, spent uh, quite a bit of time in the expo hall talking to people. Um, OzCon is unique in that it offers a full spectrum of both paid and free of charge events, similar to O'Reilly's books. I asked uh, how a dead tree publisher stays competitive in the digital era, and it turns out that in addition to events, they have made uh, huge inroads into companies, organizations, and governments with group access to their online learning materials and so on. <clears throat> they say tech books obviously play a key role in the strategy, but it's uh, they had no idea that the state of Oregon gives its employees access to the O'Reilly electronic media, uh, providing the access to all the books about open source technology. Yes, and... Also, iX Systems is the main sponsor and organizer for MeetBSD later this year, which you should try to be at because it's awesome. And uh, that's also yes. a way of iX Systems contributing back to the community. Yep. Uh, so MeetBSD will be October 19th and 20th in Santa Clara at the Intel campus. Uh, if you're around then, you should definitely come by. Uh, the call for papers is still open. You have uh, another week in a bit uh, uh, to submit yep. for that. So please hurry up and do that. <laughs> yeah, we need more submissions. We want to have a good conference and good talks. Yes. Like some of the ones we've had before, which you can see some pictures of here. Oh, yeah. Oh, the memories. Although I haven't been to all of them, but uh, I know the people. <laughs> I went to my first one in 2012. Um, I was at EuroBSDCon, my first EuroBSDCon actually in Poland in 2012. Uh, and John Hickson was like, hey, yeah, you should totally come to meet BSD. I'm like, <laughs> it's like yeah, 10 that's... days after I get home from my first trip to <laughs> Europe and you want me to fly to the States too? 
And I'm like, <laughs> mm, I don't know. EuroBSDCon was a lot of fun, so sure, let's do it. And I did it, and uh, it was great. Yeah, see? I've been back every time since. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, speaking of IX systems and ZFS, uh, we have another ZFS post. Uh, our friend Marius uh, Zaborski from Poland has a post about ZPool checkpoints. On his blog, is, yep. Uh, uh, back in March, uh, FreeBSD landed a very interesting feature called ZPool Checkpoints. Before we jump straight into the topic, let's take a step back and look at another ZFS feature called Snapshots. Uh, snapshots allow us to create an image of our single file system. This gives us an op the option to modify data on the data set without fear of losing the original data. So a snapshot basically allows you to freeze a file system as exactly how it was at the second you took the snapshot and keep that. And then if you make any changes, uh, because ZFS is copy and write, it always writes the data to a new place. But if you have a snapshot, it just means it doesn't return the old version of the data to the free space pool uh, for it to be overwritten later. So it allows you to keep both versions, but without wasting any space. Um, any blocks that are the same uh, aren't modified. And so, you know, you don't end up paying the cost of two whole copies of everything. Uh, you only have uh, space used by the blocks you've actually changed. And that's significant. Yeah. So he says, uh, a very good example of how to use ZFS snapshots is during the upgrade of, say, a database schema. Let us consider a situation where we have a few scripts which uh, change the schema of our database as part of an upgrade. Uh, sometimes we're unable to upgrade uh, everything in one transaction. For example, when we attempt to alter a table and then update a uh, the contents of it in a single transaction. If our database is on a data set, we could snapshot it. And if something goes wrong and it doesn't complete, then we just roll back and everything's back like it was. The problem with snapshots is that it works only on a single data set. Although you can take a recursive snapshot to snapshot a series of data sets all at the same time. It's not quite the same. Um, if we add some data sets, uh, like if we make new data sets, we wouldn't be able to undo that. Um, the same with changing the attributes of a data set, right? If we change the compression type or some of the other settings of a data set, that's not covered by a snapshot. So that doesn't get undone when you roll back. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, same thing if we rename or move a data set. Again, that's not changing the contents of the data set. You're actually changing the content of the pool at uh, the higher level. And so there's no way to undo that with a snapshot. So he says, another interesting problem uh, involves upgrading the whole operating system. When So when we upgrade the system with a new ZFS version, what if we start uh, upgrading our data set and the kernel begins to crash? He says, uh, if you use FreeBSD, I doubt this will ever happen, but still. <laughs> um, if we roll back to an older kernel, there's a chance the data set will not work because it has been uh, rewritten with the new way of doing things. So a zpool checkpoint is a solution to all of these problems. Instead of taking a snapshot of a single data set or a series of snapshots of single data sets, uh, you can now take a snapshot of the whole pool. Basically what a checkpoint does is saves the uber block, um, the very, very top of the tree of blocks that makes up ZFS. It saves that to a special place. Um, and it suspends all freeing operations. So while a checkpoint exists, 
it will never uh, free any data in the pool. So this means that um, while you make changes and write stuff to new places on disk, the old Uber block that only references all the old versions of everything is still saved. Uh, normally the, the Uber blocks, there's a ring of them uh, and mm -hmm. you overwrite the oldest one each time you write a new transaction and just do that in a loop. Uh, and then when you import the pool, it finds the newest one, checks the checksum. If the checksum doesn't work, it knows that that transaction didn't finish. So it rolls back one and imports the pool. Uh, this allows you to roll back much further than that. Um, and because we didn't allow any data to be freed, none of the data could have been overwritten. And so we can basically bring that pool back to exactly how it was before we made these changes. So that means you can undo uh, a ZFS destroy. You can undo a rename. You can undo changing properties. Any of the things that uh, a snapshot doesn't help you with. Oh, yeah. That's a significant way of even more having ZFS preserve its state in case you yeah. need it. Uh, so, you know, you're rolling back not just the data, but all the metadata and everything about the pool. Uh, even device removals or adding new devices can be undone by this checkpoint. Uh, mm -hmm. So some operations are not allowed while a checkpoint exists because it won't be possible to, to handle that. Yeah. Uh, so if we rewind to the checkpoint, all of our ZFS properties will be rolled back, the upgrade will be rolled back, and even any creation or deletion of snapshots will be rolled back. So uh, the way this ends up working is you can only have one checkpoint at a time. And while you keep it around, you're, even when you delete stuff, you're never freeing up space because you're keeping the deleted data to allow you to roll back to this checkpoint. So they're not meant for you to keep around long term, but they work really well for, say, upgrading appliances, where you're going to, say, rename some data sets, delete some data sets, create some new ones, uh, change some properties, and maybe even run zpool upgrade and change um, the list of features that are supported by ZFS. If yeah. anything of that goes wrong, rather than have to have a shell script or something, try to figure out what was done and undo it and what parts didn't happen yet, you just export the pool, uh, and import with the rewind checkpoint and the pulls back how it was. Yeah, that's how you uh, do firmware upgrades in these yeah, kinds of and, appliances. Uh, when you do rewind to checkpoint, it basically, all the newly written data is now not marked as allocated anymore in its free space. Uh, so as soon as you do the rewind to checkpoint, you've erased everything that's been changed since you've created the checkpoint just like when you do a rollback. Uh, so there is a read-only option. So you can do zpool import rewind to checkpoint with read-only equals on, and it will let you look at the system in that state, but not change anything. Uh, and it won't actually erase the newer data yet. Uh, or you can decide to zpool checkpoint discard uh, and throw away that old Uber block. And then you can mark all of the overwritten data as free space again. Yeah, a lot of new possibilities. Uh, so uh, with this powerful feature, you need to remember a couple of side effects. Uh, Scrub will work only on data that isn't uh, in the checkpoint. I'm not sure if I'm reading that right. Anyway, um, you can't del remove devices because that will cause confusion. Uh, you can only 
uh, but you can undo adding devices. Uh, you can't split a mirror during it because that's creating devices, and you can't use the regrid command to change the grid of the pool. Uh, and you also cannot create a new checkpoint while one of the disks is offline or been removed because you won't be able to make the copy of the Uber block on that device. Mm, that's a safety feature, yeah. Yeah, and he says, uh, for me, this feature is incredibly useful, especially when upgrading an operating system on an appliance or when I need to experiment with additional data sets and stuff. If you speak Polish, I have some additional information for you uh, during one of the... Uh, first Polish BSD user group meetings, I had the opportunity to give a short talk on this feature and uh, have links to the video and slides. Mm -hmm. uh, and Marius would like to offer his thanks to uh, Seraphim Dimitriopoulos uh, for developing this feature and for being so kind in sharing with me uh, so many of its intricacies. If you are interested in knowing more about the technical details of this feature, you should check out uh, Seraphim's blog and his video from the OpenZFS Developer Summit. Yeah, great. That's a good uh, uh, summary of the feature. Speaking of features, uh, when OpenBSD people come together to do certain feature development, it's called a hackathon. And uh, they recently had one, and this was called G2K18, and a bunch of reports have appeared uh, uh, from various people who attended the hackathon, and they all uh, posted that on Undeadly, of course. Yes, and uh, which was down earlier this morning, which is why some of these uh, tabs I have open are from archive.org. Ah, <laughs> just in case. Yeah, it seems to be back uh, right before our show. Great. So the first one is from Ingo Schwarze on uh, Z, uh, bug fixing with Martin von Duren and about other small user land stuff. So, uh, oh, that's a bunch of text. Yeah, uh, so it's just the, one uh, report. <laughs> yeah, uh, so... Uh, Ingo worked on improving the SED. Uh, originally, they suspected multiple bugs in the utility, uh, so they began by comparing the POSIX specification, the OpenBSD man page, and the OpenBSD implementation, and they found uh, a couple of bugs. Okay. And then they also looked at improving UTF-8 support in some of the small utilities, like LAM, the laminating tool, which is quite uh, useful. I didn't realized just how great it was until I started using it. <laughs> uh, next up, uh, Ken Westerback uh, worked on the DHCP server and some fixes for disk label. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's that's important to have. So that's interesting. And then uh, Mark SB worked on ports and packages stuff, including updating the package list, uh, fixed an infamous cups bug, uh, and adding tags to the port tree. Oh, interesting. Uh, and then Antoine Jacoteau uh, was working on porting Didn't say porting what. <laughs> ah, oops. Uh, updated lib rsvg to the latest stable version. Uh, oh, general porting. And, yeah, uh, so actually in the port tree. So they were playing with a bunch of interesting bits there. Yeah, uh, a lot of details. 
Then uh, Matthew Herb worked on font caches and the XenoDM. Is, is, it, is OpenBSD going to have its own desktop manager? Ah, <laughs> oh, see. Or is it Zen ODM? No, I'm pretty sure it's Zeno, as in Zenokara. The oh, right. The, the, right, okay. Makes sense. Yeah, okay. So OpenBSD on a desktop. Uh, yeah, that's a stripped-down X display manager. Mm-hmm. So there are bug fixes there. So Cool. Oh, wow. They seem to have a, a lot of details in each of those reports. Yeah. Well worth reading each of them. Yeah, well, I think these are kind of equivalent to the trip reports we get when uh, the FreeBSD Foundation sponsors people to go to Dev Summits. Uh, yeah. Oh, the next one is a bit uh, shorter from Florian Opser on RT ADVD uh, to RAD progress, actually rewrite. So that one... Um, uh, <laughs> it goes like this. Sometimes you have to roll the hard six. I have been trying to bolt a standard OpenBSD parse.y based config file onto RT RDVD for about a year now. I could not do it. The code base is just too weird. There are other bugs lurking as well, and I have a hard time fixing them. So about two weeks before the hackathon, he had an evening to waste, and though hard it may seem, it had to be uh, write an IPv6 router advertisement daemon from scratch. Well, after all, if nobody comes from the future to stop you, how bad can the decision really be? <laughs> Enter our new router advertisement daemon, RAD. So that happened there. And uh, yeah, in total, it took nine days from start to hitting the tree. And yeah, that was the result of this hackathon for, for Florian. Cool. But there's more. There's mm-hmm. uh, Robert, uh, there's Clement, uh, Clemens Nani on improvements to route, PFCTL, and mount. That also. Those are. One of these things is not like the others. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting what everyone uh, works on these uh, hackathons. And of course, there are also discussions between people and coordination, but they get uh, a bunch of stuff done during these. Uh, it's, it's cool. Uh, Carlos Cardenas on VMM VMD progress and LACP. That's also interesting in the virtualization space. Uh, oh, wow, yeah. Cool. And last but not least, oh, no, uh, second to last is Claudio Yeker on Open BGPD developments for um, people running those services. They probably need uh, a good BGPD, which is already good in OpenBSD, but it can be made even better. So that's been worked on. And really, now last... But not least, oh, we have the picture here from Slovenia, mm-hmm. where they were. From oh, see, that's that's really from that's an action shot, pretty much. Everyone at uh, like these group tables and laptops open and people uh, quietly working and see. Yeah. Sometimes people have just not just one laptop but two. So yeah, yeah. Uh, or well, if there is a picture from the Dev Summit we had in Paris at the Mozilla office, uh, there was me with three laptops networked together. <laughs> it was a yeah. little crazy. Trying to get FreeBSD <laughs> booting on my Mac. <laughs> yeah, just because you 
can not only just take one laptop, but two or sometimes three. So yeah, it seems like OpenBSD uh, was a successful hackathon, the G2K18. And um, I guess they will work on the features that didn't get finished and we'll surely have them in future episodes as uh, more highlighted features. Time for Beastie Bits this week with something blocked on Package Source Con 2018. Yep, it's been happening again. There was a, a Package Source Con, and for this year's Package Source Con, the baton was passed to Pierre Proncheri and Thomas Merkel, located in Berlin. Oh, cool! It wasn't clear whether it would be uh, or they would be able to attend. Well, which is uh, our friend Seven here. Uh, blogging about this um, this year until the very last minute. He Oh, he was able to book plane tickets and accommodation a couple of days before. And with the day before he flew out, he was really hectic and it did not get any sleep. Uh, left home early in the morning and to get there to have package source con, go to the airport, uh, go to the city center, then roam the city a little bit looking for street art. Uh, yeah, there is a bunch of street art in Berlin. Uh, you can see one in the picture here. And, of course, the main topic was a Package Source Con, eh, which seemed quite packed from the number of people here. Oh, there's more street art coming down. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, that's where um, Package Source Con happened this year. And, um, <laughs> okay, more street art. Uh, I'm distracted by street art in Berlin. But, uh, actually, the, the conference um, for Package Source um, was... Great. He gave a talk about something old, something new, something borrowed, and uh, that was uh, his talk at the conference. There were also a bunch of other things discussed, as well as um, giving uh, like talks about a fourth programming language and experience with it, uh, or different other um, uh, talks about you know um, <laughs> package source related topics. Check out the full article that. Uh, Seban has wrote on his uh, blog and uh, yeah, maybe we'll have some future uh, reports about Package Source Con. Yeah, um, uh, apparently they also talked about the J programming language and the K programming language. How many uh, letters in the alphabet are free still? <laughs> well, okay. There's more reports for um, oh, from Google Summer of Code 2018 because that's also about to wrap up. And that's also from NetBSD, this one. And the project was Configuration Files Versioning in Package Source. And you can find that on the NetBSD blog. Yeah, uh, so this is from their GSOC student. And it says, packages may install code, both machine executable code and interpretable programs, like shell scripts and Perl scripts and so on. Uh, documentation and manual pages, source header files, shared libraries, and other resources. Uh, but also, possibly, configuration files. Configuration files are usually the means through which the behavior of a program without a user interface is specified. This covers part of the operating system, network daemons, and other programs in general that don't come with an interactive graphic or textual interface. System-wide configuration for uh, operating system software tends to be kept under slash etc, while configuration for software installed by package source ends up in your local base directory under etc. So. Uh, user PKG ETC by default on NetBSD. Um, software packaged as part of package source provides uh, example configuration files, like uh, under share examples and the name of the package. After a package has been extracted, 
prepending the uh, prefix or local base to relative file paths uh, in the plist, metadata entries such as build info, description, etc., get extracted into the package database. Uh, some shell scripts uh, also get extracted there, like the install and deinstall scripts. Uh, two main frameworks existing care of installation and deinstallation tasks. The package tasks, which is still experimental, is structured as a library of POSIX compliant shell scripts implementing the functions we need uh, to install things. Currently, uh, package, force, or package source defaults to using the PKG install framework, which is mentioned copies out from the main file separate monolithic scripts handling uh, the creation and removal of directories on the systems outside of the package base and so on. Uh, among the other duties of, is the files add, uh, as called by install, which copies uh, files with the correct permissions from the package base into the destination directory. Uh, so in the example, in the case of a config file, uh, it ends up uh, installing the file. The file is copied into place with the permissions for read only. Um, and the uh, example file coming from the default and then gets, if one doesn't exist, it copies the example config file into the default location. As of today, this only happens if the package has never been installed before and the configuration file doesn't already exist. Uh, this is to avoid overwriting any configuration changes that the user has made. Uh, but as part of the GSOC, they'll now uh, make this a bit smarter. Programs uh, can be can call the uh, script, and in order to avoid breakage, install the configuration is backed up uh, in the VCS, separating user-modified files from files that have been automatically merged in the past in order to allow the administrator to easily restore the last manually edited file in case of a breakage. Uh, branches are deliberately not used uh, since not everyone may wish to get familiar with their version control system at that level. Hmm. Uh, but it'll basically use basic uh, version control stuff on the config file so you'll be able to uh, deal with merging the config file when you update a package. Okay. Anyway, if you're interested in more detail, you should go check that out. Yep, and I guess we'll see more Google Summer of Code reports as the Summer of Code program comes to an end soon. Okay, more about uh, a global awareness week for developers or uh, developing yeah, it under resource constraints. It's, it seems that a developer got slightly jealous of sysadmin day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is over at uh, Mastodon, bsd.network. And that goes um, by Moolander. There should be a global awareness week for developers. For a week, reduce your RAM to 2 gigabytes, disable all cores except 2, downscale your resolution to 1366 by 768, and cap your internet at 1 megabit per second or less for mobile developers. Maybe, just maybe, we will start to have less crappy, bloated software. So, okay, so this is, it sounds like this is a week of punishment for developers rather than <laughs> yeah. not quite the same as uh, what I was picturing them being jealous about. Uh, um, the, the resources? <laughs> yeah. But it, it's true. In general, programs have become 
less and less um, mindful about um, using resources sparingly instead of, uh, oh, let's just allocate a bunch of memory. Like, look at your, um, let's say, browser usage, how much memory is that taking? So I, I agree there's a bunch of new features in those programs, but at the, the downside is there's a bunch of memory that you need to provide just to have a basic browser running these days. And other programs as well, like, uh, well, office suits have never been small <laughs> in the memory footprint, uh, but also resolution-wise and uh, the number of CPU cores they need. It's, yeah, it's a problem. And I guess students nowadays learning to program are not being taught to be uh, mindful about resources in computers. So they just use whatever is available and as much as they can. Anyway, uh, the Polish BSD user group has their upcoming meeting on August 9th. Uh, they have a secret special guest, so you'll definitely want to go see that one. George Oof. Neville Neal will be stopping in Poland hey. on his way to uh, wherever he's off to next. Cool, yeah. Are we to Cambridge or not? Uh, <laughs> but he will be giving his uh, D-Trace for Developers a short version of that uh, as at the uh, uh, Polish user group there. Uh, and then there will also be a talk about um, live streaming the FIFA World Cup finals. Oh, interesting. Yes. Isn't that uh, user group also being streamed live? Yes. The meetings? Okay, so uh, people who... I will Polish... be on an airplane during that, though. So. <laughs> yeah, you can watch that live. But um, yeah, in case people are interested mm -hmm. in what they're talking about, um, it's available. And another piece uh, and our friend Savan is organizing the uh, August BSD meetup for London uh, will be on Tuesday, uh, August oh, 14th right at oh, 6.30 right. at the Hand in Shears. Oh, that's right before the, meet, the BSD Cam uh, Developer yes. Summit. Okay. Plenty of activities in the UK that week <laughs> for the BSDs. Oh, but generally great to have that uh, user groups becoming a regular thing and uh, yeah, that people go there, have a, a way to talk to other fellow BSD uh, users and developers. Great. Uh, we also found, or it got posted to us, uh, uh, there's um, a collection of reasons why ZFS is better so that uh, people don't have to repeat it all often. Uh, why ZFS is better.com. And they asked us to um, update it a little bit or correct some errors that might be in there. And Alan has been happy to do that. Uh, but if you yeah, want to quick... Not had quick, time to read over the whole thing yet, but... Yeah, but elevator pitch-wise, if people have never heard about ZFS, point them to that website and they can get the condensed version about the cool features that ZFS has on that website, as well as supported uh -huh. systems and, yeah, a bunch and of... And it's on GitHub, so you can fork it and improve it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so thanks for that. We uh, have an easy way to point people to that one. And uh, we have something great to tell you because EuroBSDCon 2018 talks and tutorials have been announced and registration is open now. You can go there, participate, or at least attend, and make yep, use so of that. EuroBSDCon will be in Romania September 20th to 23rd. Uh, at the Polytechnic University there. Um, 
you want to register soon. Uh, the early bird discount ends on August 24th. After that, you will have to pay extra for being lazy. So register now. <laughs> yes, uh, don't miss that. Uh, Alan and I will be there among hopefully 200 other people. And uh, yeah, they have already published a schedule and the registration, uh, of course. Oh, the yes. tutorials are also there. Okay, great. Yes, uh, so tutorials can... need to be there because you pick them at registration. Oh, yeah, you need to register uh, for that so they can size the rooms, how many people are going to, I don't know, managing BST systems with Ansible by yours truly, or in parallel, advanced container management with LibIOCage, or Ports and Poudrier, which is Nicholas Sizing giving his tutorial about um, how to do ports and packages for the first time, as well as LibTLS tutorial for TLS beginners by Bob Beck, or a full day Marshall Kurt McCusick introduction to the FreeBSD open source operating system, or Peter Hessler giving you the introduction for BGP for developers and sysadmins. Ooh, I don't have to compete with Kirk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good. And uh, check out also the talk, um, you know, schedule and uh, what kind of cool things you can hear there. Uh, so it should be a great uh, conference coming up in Europe. Mm -hmm. Oh, speaking of conferences, another one is happening uh, by the end of the year, MeetBSD 2018. We mentioned it already on the show, but you can't mention it enough. This is in October 19th till the 20th in Santa Clara, California. The call for papers closes on August 13th, so hurry Actually, up. Actually, it closes on the morning of August 13th, so you mean you have until late at night on the 12th. Yeah, okay, yeah, even even shorter. Yeah, so don't wait. Send a paper that you want to present on BSDs. And, of course, registration has also been uh, open for a while now. So if you want to just attend, which is also good, uh, go ahead and do that. So we yes. can see uh, at BSD. love to get more talks submitted. Uh, and... Yeah, he will see up. us Submit. both there. See you there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> short and sweet. Of course, um, someone who is also likely to be there is uh, Tarsnap author Colin Percival. And what is Tarsnap? Well, that's not only just a backup solution, but it's also powering our feedback and questions section that's coming up. But Tarsnap is exactly the solution for your backup needs in case you want to do backups regularly and you want to do them securely into the cloud because that has a lot of disk space. But you also are conscious about only being the single person who holds the key to your backup and to the restore. Because in case you need it, you can restore it if you hold the key and no one else in the cloud is able to access your backup files, which contain important data, because it's encrypted and it's encrypted before it leaves your system. So all the data that you have is segmented, deduplicated, new unique blocks are calculated, those are compressed, and then they are uh, encrypted and signed, which means it's smaller through the compression and deduplication, and that result is uh, encrypted and put out into the Amazon cloud, where you can pull it down again in case you need it. And that's what Tarsnap does for you. Yep, uh, it only takes $5 to get started, so you might as well be backing up securely. Yep, and you can do, uh, it has a bunch of documentation, how to get started on the website, tarsnet.com, 
and there's a bunch of clients available for various operating systems, so there's no excuse for not using it or not backing yes, and up. Well, you know, we we repeat time and time again that it's as easy to use as tar. If that's not easy enough for you, there's even a a, a graphical client now. So yeah, so even less excuses for not doing your backups. And don't blame us if you lose files and haven't used Tarsnap before. Yes, in fact, <laughs> so, yeah. if you lose files after all the times we told you to do backups, you should have to pay us a fine. It's, yeah, the, the five dollars uh, for the Tarsnap service. <laughs> so yeah, uh, check that out and uh, make backups. Okay, time for our feedback and questions section this week, uh, starting with Dale about the L two Arc uh, recommendations there and Drive Age question. Uh, Dale writes, Hello, Alan and Benedict. I want to add an L2 Arc to my server. While doing some research, I found some articles suggesting that I use enterprise-grade SSDs due to their increased write endurance. Are those drives really necessary compared to a consumer SSD? I'm shaking um, my well, head. You're going to get written to a lot. Like, you know, as you're reading stuff off disk, the stuff you're pushing out of the uh, ARC and RAM will get written to the SSD and maybe it'll get used, maybe it won't, but you'll be constantly overriding this drive over and over and over again. Um, eventually that will kill the SSD. If it's a cheaper SSD, it'll die a lot sooner. Um, sure. But it's not the and, only uh, requirement to... Right. To uh, you know, if you're not depending on the L2 ARC for speed, then I suppose it won't matter that it dies. But at the same time, if you're not depending on the L2 arc for speed, why do you need an L2 arc at all? In the first place, yeah. Okay, so he writes, I have three one terabyte Western Digital Red drives with three that are mirrors and want to add four more, which is part of my second question. So he has four one terabyte Western Digital Red drives that are about six years old. They're in a Netgear ReadyNAS Pro 4. They have been scrubbed every month with no errors. I want to take the ReadyNAS out of service and move the drives into my free BSD server so I can benefit from ZFS instead of proprietary rate the ReadyNAS uses. So he's been building PC since 1992 and worked in IT hardware service for eight years. Uh, they never replaced drives until they failed or showed signs of failing. What are our uh, or opinions on continuing to use these drives? They're getting awfully old. The chance of them failing very close together is quite high at this point. Um, Six years, yeah. It can happen you know, any time. You might be three deep mirrors or something, I suppose. But it that you've got your money out of those drives. Why not buy new ones? Yeah. Over time, replace them, and uh, yeah, the newer ones data. will be faster as well. <clears throat> yep. So don't wait too long. Don't yeah, be I sorry don't afterwards. Know that I have many drives that old still around because yeah, they died. Run that. run smart checks on them so you can see how right. uh, how badly they're dying. <laughs> Which one is likely to be the first one? But yeah, let's. Uh, I hope that answers your question and. Uh, up next is uh, Todd with ZFS and S3 questions, or one question. Uh, Todd writes, love the show, but I recently ran across an interesting idea. What if I could import zpools or add data sets directly from Amazon S3? I went hunting around and really did not find much other than it should be possible if you can get standard in and standard out working. I just wanted to know if this is possible. Could you simply zpool import a bucket or mount a data set? 
it sure would be nice to be able to put or get data or recreate a snapshot directly to and from S3. So you can use ZFS Send to turn a data set into a file that you could store in S3. Although, depending what you're doing, like if you want to actually interactively use it, that's you would use Amazon EBS rather than S3. But yes, you could store a ZFS Send stream uh, into S3, get it back later, and ZFS receive it, I suppose. Hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, there's no, no limit. It depends in- what you're wanting to do. Um, yeah, probably not related to what much. you want, but what some people when I hear ZFS and S three, I think of uh, this other thing called Minio, uh, which is oh, yeah. a daemon you can run on top of FreeBSD to create an S three like API to allow people to store files on ZFS. So an app that only knows how to use S three, you point it at a URL that is your your FreeBSD machine. And it talks to this app, which writes the data onto ZFS, and you get basically a ZFS-powered S3 clone. Mm. And all the MinIO clients that you start on other servers that use the same ID or key, I'm not remembering that. Yeah, you can um, do uh, they can participate stuff to actually make sure that, you know, each one of those objects you write to S3 is stored on three out of the five of your uh, ZFS machines or something like that. Yeah, for backup purposes in case one dies. Well, not backups as much as redundancy, but yeah. Or redundancy, yeah, to replicate among different machines, yeah. Okay, yeah, that's uh, our uh, answer to that. And uh, next up is Ephraim with License Poem. Oh, I think we had that one already, so that no, goes... this is the one where somebody actually read the poem. I think this is somebody's license that actually is a poem. Oh, okay. So that goes, I'm a bit behind on listening, but this is my first license text. I thought of that uses a poem for its license. So there's a link here. This work as is we provide, uh, no warranty (laughs) express or implied. We've done our best to debug and test liability for damages denied. Permission is granted hereby to copy, share, and modify. Uh, Use it as fit, free, or for profit. These rights on this notice rely. (laughs) Oh, wow. That's that's really poetic. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thanks for uh, for that submission. BSD, MIT-ish license. <laughs> yeah, cool. So small bits like that keep the show uh, interesting. And last but not least is Hendrik with yet another ZFS question. Uh, that's a bit longer. Here goes. Uh, first of all, thank you for a great show. I'm a long-time listener, but first-time writer. Uh, it's actually because of BSD Now that I started to play around with OpenBSD in the first place. Oh, great. After 20 years or so in the Linux world, and now all infrastructure that I manage is almost only driven by BSD. See, Alan, that's what we do with the show. Yep. It's uh, <laughs> inevitable. Uh, the only thing that he has a hard time changing out is his day-to-day Lenovo T40, uh, T431s with Debian. Uh, I know that there have been a lot of questions about ZFS already, and there's yet another one coming. I don't really know if this is going to be a question or not, or if it's just a need to confirmation, but uh, I've planned this. It's the right way to do. But here it comes anyway. So he has a small home server running Debian with ZFS on Linux and a lot of KVMs running OpenBSDs and a few Debian servers for doing various tasks. The ZFS pools have today he has today is a small SSD for our pool, one build out of four... Uh, Four old one terabyte disks in RAID Z1 that he just uh, has laying around when his when he first installed ZFS on the server and didn't know anything, and with a Samsung 512 gig SSD for L2 Arc and Zill. 
at first, he just used it for playing around and learning ZFS, since he had used LVM on everything for the past 10 or more years, but now finds himself in love with ZFS and would never, with the technology of today, change back. So since his confidence of uh, both his skills regarding ZFS, with a big thanks to Michael W. Lucas and his books on the internet, and Alan as co-author on one of these books, or two of them actually, and in ZFS in general, only have grown, he can now see that the server has nothing to do on the old LVM partitions and all data is on ZFS. So he plans to change away from the RAID Z1 to a mirror of two 12 terabyte disks. But what is the best way to do this, preferably without any or at least very little downtime to the KVM? So he has outlined his uh, way of doing it. Uh, so first, create a new mirror of the two 12 terabyte disks and create a pool on it. Uh, take a snapshot of the old pool, send and receive well, snapshot. He, he specifically mentioned setting dedupe. You probably don't want to set dedupe. You almost never, ever want to set dedupe. Um, yeah. Compression, oh, right. though, you do want to turn that on in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, be careful with dedupe. Uh, so the third step is send and receive the snapshot to the new pool. So you can just take a snapshot of the container, or do I have to take one of the each subpool and send and receive separately? Uh, um, so I'm guessing by subpool he means dataset. So if you do ZFS snapshot dash R for recursive uh, pool at snapshot name, that snapshot name will exist on every dataset under where you take the snapshot. So then you can ZFS send that to the new pool. Once that's done, take a second snapshot of everything and do incremental replication to cover everything that changed in the, it might, you know, take a day to copy all the data to the new pool. Uh, so you do an incremental and send that, uh, and it should take a lot less time. And then it probably still took over an hour, so then you do it again and just keep repeating that process until the amount of time is down to, you know, less than uh, a minute. Then you want to stop all of your KVMs, uh, another snapshot, replicate that real quick, then you can switch the pools around, mount points around or whatever, and start the KVM again, and should have less than 60 seconds of downtime, hopefully. Yeah, and have consistent backups. Because previously, the KVMs were still running, but after you switched them off, they stored all their data on the snapshots, uh, not on the snapshots, on the data sets, and then you have the second replication going on with the actual data being uh, consistent for the KVMs. Uh, uh, he also mentions adding a small SSD for Zill. Um, so the ZIL, the ZFS intent log, is a feature of ZFS, and it's always there. It's usually part of the pool. Uh, when you have an SSD for the right cache, that's called slog, separate intent log. Um, and that's when you have the ZIL be on a different disk. But uh, anyway, just a terminology mm -hmm. thing there. Um, but yes, uh, your plan mostly will work. You just need that little loop in the middle to, to get the amount of... Uh, how different the two file systems are very small before you do the part where you stop the KVMs, replicate the last bits, and then start them again. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so in the future, uh, I can always add more space by adding in another mirror of 12 terabyte drives, because yes. let's face uh, so it... When you add separate mirrors, they don't have to be the same size. So you can... Yeah, they can be... Smaller, you know, or you can bigger. Use eight terabyte drives if they happen to be on sale, or you know, sixteen terabyte drives if those are a thing. Then and so on. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, that's that's cool with ZFS. Um, next project he writes is getting a FreeBSD with Beehive to run the guest and a couple of storage servers running ClusterFS on top of ZFS for better redundancy and speed, which is already tested on his KVM. But that might be a mail for another time and a project for another day. Yeah. Yeah. Do that and send us a report or a little blog post maybe if you have uh, succeeded in that or if you have a different question, then send us in a future episode. Yeah, so if you just do uh, ZFS snapshot dash R container at snapshot name, it will automatically create container slash VM at snapshot name and container dash VM slash guest slash media at snapshot or whatever. And uh, you'll be able to just do replication across all of those. Yeah, that's that's how ZFS does it. Easy and uh, incrementally helps you save a lot of time transferring files after the initial one, of course. Yeah, the initial one might take a while, and that's why you would do um, the initial one. Let that happen. Well, the you know the KVMs don't even have to pause for this; they can just keep going. Uh, and then once that's done, you could do another incremental, and then once and you just keep doing that until the amount of time it's taking to transfer it is down to as small as it's going to get. Then you can do stop the KVMs, snapshot, last replication, uh, rename the mount points or whatever to get your new pool in the right place and then start the KVMs back up and ideally you would have downtime of less than 60 seconds. Mm -hmm. Isn't that cool? Yeah. Try All doing right. that with LVM. Uh, yeah, good luck with that. Um, so that pretty much wraps up our frequent question section as well as the whole episode. Uh, in any episode, we ask you to send us questions, comments, show ideas, topics, or stories that you found on the internet about the BSDs and send that to feedback at bsdnow.tv so we have content for future episodes. I guess you should probably do your contest thing again though. Oh, right. Isn't that... Give uh, people a bit more time because... Good thing. Yeah. So uh, in our last four episode, so far. <laughs> yeah. So we have this little power bagel, which is a mobile... Um, yeah, power adapter for various countries that can serve up to four different devices. You can see it here. They don't block yes, each other. The point of this is that you're the guy at the conference, like EuroVSDCon, who can spare an outlet for a new friend. Yep. And, it's, it's a uh, friend-making device. <laughs> exactly. And this little goodie is easy to get. Just uh, look at the four December episodes that we did in twenty. 17 and there should be a couple of letters here in my bookcase on each of those four episodes send us those letters or the words that they form uh, in order of course send that also to uh, feedback at bsdnow.tv and then we'll draw the lucky winner live on the show uh, that's next week on the 8th I think if I'm not mistaken and then we will contact you and send you this little goodie thing we only have one uh, unfortunately but um, even uh, with that, it's a nice way of uh, saying thank you to our uh, trusty readers and listeners uh, over the years that uh, have been keeping with us uh, over these 256 episodes that we did already, plus this one. So yeah, thanks and again yes, for watching. Remember, register for your BSD con and submit a paper for Meet BSD. Yeah, be early, don't be late and uh, see you there at the conference or in the next episode, whichever comes first. <laughs>